Hello and welcome to Life Learnings. I'm Barry Harker and my guest today is John Maxwell. John has been the president of the Kurenbong Community Services Centre for the past eight years. When he retired in 2000, John was the Sydney Adventist Hospital's administrative engineer representative on various building projects, having also served as chief engineer at the hospital. John's peers, the International Hospital Engineers of Australia, gave him the Engineer of the Year Award in 1999. John initially trained as an electrical mechanic at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. While working at the Sydney Adventist Hospital, John played a significant support role for the hospital's open-heart surgery teams that worked overseas. John has been married to Marilyn since 1959, and they have two children and nine grandchildren. John is an experienced abseiler, having been an instructor. In the first part of the program, I'll be talking with John about his community work and his professional life at Sydney Adventist Hospital. Welcome, John. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here. John, what services are provided by the Kurumbong Community Services Centre and what does your role of president entail? The services we provide at the centre are as an op shop, if you would like to call it that, having a furniture department, a men's wear department, a ladies' wear, a children's wear, variety. And uh, we help the community from the sales of these products um, with food vouchers or petrol vouchers or other times some expenses they can't afford to make. Um, we also... Uh, have a preschool which is attended by a number of children which we uh, operate. We then have a number of halls which we, uh, a small hall and a larger hall which is rented out on a frequent and regular basis. But the, our main thrust for the community is helping those people who are down on their luck a bit. Okay. And so your role, what's that as president? What do you do? I suppose as president, I could take a humorous look at that and say I do the things other people don't want to do. <laughs> but it's my role to organise uh, with the help of an assistant, uh, Dorothy Cottier. Uh, she looks after all my interviews of people that are getting assistance. I have a person that liaises with the government by the name of Bob Spore. Uh, and my role is to then organise and uh, make sure that the centre runs effectively and efficiently. How many days a week are you involved, John? That can be a point of contention, Barry. Uh, two days we're open, but I'm there mostly five days. Hmm. What are the needs of the community? The community has uh, two or three specific needs. Our socio-economic group that we live in sometimes got uh, low uh, esteem. They come along and they have... Uh, a Centrelink payment, which has come out up next Thursday, but they have immediate needs right now. We don't give people money, but we do give them relief as far as food vouchers and petrol vouchers so they get, don't have to spend their money on those items and can afford to do things with it elsewhere. These needs, are they changing over time during your time as president? Have you seen a change in the needs that people have? Not a change in the needs, but a change in the volume. Because of uh, unemployment rising, we do have an increased uh, demand on our services there. Are there any emerging needs that you see? Uh, from emerging needs, I think we are going to see uh, what we have uh, 
becoming more demanding, but there is an emerging need of uh, counselling, if you want to put it that way. People come in, they're not quite sure how to handle their money, which they get. So counselling on um, being effective budgeting would be one of the things, I think, in the future. Sean, what area does the centre serve? An area bounded by Freeman's Waterhole, Waii, uh, Morissette, Arcadia Vale, roughly is the area we work in. Um, we have an agreement with Centrelink that we help people within our own immediate community and we try and uh, adhere to that and make it a lot easier for them and us. How did the centre get off the ground? That's a long story, but it basically started off as a uniform swap shop in a room in the uh, uh, Avondale schools before it was attached to uh, on the college grounds. So that's how it started, and over the years it grew and grew until you see what it is today. How many volunteers have you got? Eighty. Now, you told me that some of them were pretty old. Yes, I did. Um, our oldest person is coming up to 95 shortly, and I guess I can put myself amongst one of the younger people there, and I'm uh, 78. But there are people that are a little bit um, younger than I. So our average age is about 80 years for the uh, number of people who work there. That's wonderful that you've got people who are willing to, at that age, come in and devote their time to some sort of community work. What are the big challenges that the centre faces? The challenges are many. Uh, one, you have to sell a lot of things at 50 cents to make a lot of money, enough to be able to fund your food programs and petrol programs and help other people. We help a large number of various uh, individuals and groups, like the Rural Fire Service um, and the Police Citizens Youth Club and 3ABN from time to time, as well as other groups in Africa. But fundraising is a, uh, a big issue. Uh, satisfactorily so far, we've been able to do it, and we hope in the future we'll be able to continue to do that. Our second one is staffing, and we need to keep before the people's uh, memory that we do need, from time to time, uh, staffing members. What's the most satisfying aspect of your work at the centre? As I was saying to you before, Barry, I've done my apprenticeship in interviewing people that have come for help. I don't normally do it, but I have done my apprenticeship. And when you see those people walk out, they come in with a very despondent look, they go out with a little bit of a spring in their step, and they go out with a little bit of hope and maybe a little bit of a change in their eye look. So that, that's one of the things that I find quite rewarding, that they go away with some hope in their heart. Yeah, that's always satisfying, isn't it, when you can see people who are despondent and down and not coping with things, mm. just um, go out with hope. Let's go now to your work at the Sydney Adventist Hospital. In 1963, you went to work there. What was your first role? I went to work at the Sydney Adventist Hospital at the request of... Uh, oh, sorry, I should go back... It was a Sydney Sanitarium and Hospital then in 1963 and um, Pastor Alan Forbes had asked me to go there as the electrician. Now, you initially trained as an electrical mechanic or an electrician yes. at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. When you went to the Sydney Sanitarium and Hospital, you did some additional studies. So what were those studies? 
I got involved in refrigeration, electronics, and then I did a maintenance management program, um, which helped me through the years to be able to ascertain um, various things to be do with maintenance. When did you become chief engineer? I think it was 98. So that's just prior to your retirement. Not far away from that, yeah. Tell me about your Engineer of the Year award. That was a complete surprise to me. Uh, some member of our staff had put my name forward to the uh, Institute and uh, I was quite surprised when I rolled up one day. We were heading north on holidays and we stopped at Terrigal to go to the meeting and that's when I found out that I was being awarded that uh, medallion and uh, I felt very humbled by that mm. because I didn't think I was doing anything that was special to uh, ex to receive that medal, but others did. And I think it was based on some of the work we've been doing as an outreach program as well. Okay, so we're coming to that in a moment. In 1986, Operation Open Heart for Tonga was put in place at Sydney Adventist Hospital. How and why did this project get established? It got established by one young man. This man's name is Russell Lee. He's a nurse. His father was working in Tonga, and so Russell went out to Tonga to uh, do some research there on his nursing program, and he was amazed by the number of young people he saw that were affected with rheumatic fever. That's not a lifestyle issue, that's a public health issue. And uh, so he came back to Sydney, and he talked to a friend of his, his name is Rudy Morgan, and then another one called Dr. John Wallace, and they decided that they would try and do something to help. And uh, so we started fundraising to be able to send enough equipment and materials to Tonga to perform cardiac surgery for the first time in that country. How did you get all the equipment there? That's a little bit of a story in itself. Um, there were 17 tonnes that had to get there, and that was made up basically of uh, oxygen bottles because they had limited oxygen supplies in uh, Tonga. And so we got together all our equipment and took it down to the naval dockyard by truck, unloaded it there, and the Navy very kindly offloaded a helicopter out of their, uh, their ship and they stored all the equipment we were taking to Tonga in that hangar. Uh, the next thing we know, it's been arrived at... Uh, Tonga and been stowed in a container there ready for our use and we arrived and uh, we were able to get everything we needed from that container to do a necessary installation for the heart team to function. How did the project operate John and what were the outcomes? The uh, Tongan Open Heart for Surgery program um, uh, operated for a number, a group of volunteers which I've shown you a list earlier and uh, those people all graciously gave their time and uh, talent and effort to make this project a success. The, uh, the advance party went along and set up the operating theatre and created an intensive care environment for the patients. At the same time... Were you part of that advance party? I was. My, um, there were four of us. There was myself, my wife, Alan Schmidt and his wife, and we formed a group that... Uh, did an engineering installation 10 days before the main party arrived. And whilst uh, we're there, the uh, cardiologists are assessing people 
and uh, getting a, a short list for doing surgery on. Uh, so that happened quite well, that people went home and waiting to call to come in for their surgery. And uh, so the radio announcement was made. And the closest word in Tongan that comes to surgeon, I believe, is butcher. And so they made the announcement that the uh, butchers are here, it's time to come <laughs> for your surgery. As you can expect, not a single soul turned up. And it took two or three days to go out and see these people again and convince them that it was a safe environment to come to. So uh, the program got underway eventually, two days late. What was the outcome of the project? It was very good. A number of young people, when I say young people, uh, this young lady I was telling you about, Alavini, she was a young girl. She survived very well, and so did a number of other people. There are always risks when you're doing cardiac surgery, and there are always difficult times. But it went off fairly well, and I think the Tongan nation appreciated what we were doing because they actually may created a law which we didn't have to uh, do any pay any duties for on the equipment coming in. Otherwise, that would have been a crippling effect. Mm. Mm. Tell me a bit more about your role um, in, in support. I know that you set up the ICU unit with, uh, with Alan, but what were the sorts of things that you'd, you had to be responsible for in supporting the medical teams? The one in Tonga in particular, we had to take our own air compressor and install it, then take it through a refrigerator dryer so we could provide suction and we could provide medical quality air. Secondly, we provided oxygen from reticulation from bottles of oxygen. And thirdly, we created a safe environment for the patient in the theatre. When I say a safe electrical environment, I mean an environment where you won't be micro-electrocuted when you, whilst you're being operated on because it's very easy for that to happen. So particular care has to be taken to make sure that people cannot get affected by microelectrocution. So your role is actually quite a significant one in just ensuring that the conditions under which the medical teams are working are within the parameters that are required. Yes. I think the uh, cardiac surgeons are the, uh, the main persons, but we do support them by making sure their environments are going to be one a good one for the patients and themselves. Did you ever have to confront any serious emergencies? Some countries have emergencies of their own because a lot of uh, developing countries don't have a regular power supply. So uh, we have to make sure that the generator that's there is capable to run for some hours and to provide the power we need. Other things that can happen, a light fitting falls out of the ceiling, we run out of water... And those kind of things make an interesting day because you've got to have plenty of water when you're doing uh, various surgery and surgical procedures. Were there any other problems that you had to confront in the project? I mean, working within our own cultures sometimes difficult enough, but working across cultures makes it even more difficult. Were there any other sorts of issues that you had to confront? One was very interesting. We had arranged that the generator would be starting at a particular time and we could be re reassured that power was going to be available. So we all rolled up in the morning, ready to start. We need to start the generator. Oh, the man with the key is fishing. So we had to find the man with the key that was fishing, bring him back to the hospital, 
and then start the generator. So obviously we didn't start on time. But that was one of the things. See, it didn't really matter to him because, uh, well, uh, I've got the key and I'm in charge of the generator and uh, I'll start it when I'm ready. So they're kind of the things we have to put up with. Ireland time is very different to the time that you and I work on. The project became so successful that it was extended to other countries. What were those other countries? Fiji, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, New Guinea, China, Myanmar, Malawi and Nepal. They're the ones that I'm aware of at the moment. There could be others in the last little while. These projects are ongoing, aren't they? They are. And later in the project, I'm actually going to um, let people know how they can support these projects if they would like to do, if they'd like to do that. Which countries presented the greatest challenges technically to this project? From my perspective, I think Nepal would be the greatest challenge because uh, they, their culture is very different to ours. Uh, life doesn't mean a great deal either. And uh, the issues there were ones of trying to make people aware of the, uh, their need to keep their equipment working well. Uh, that's not a normal thing that happens out there. So we had to struggle culturally to get people to recognise the fact that they needed day by day to do a maintenance check on everything. Your work then at the hospital has taken you to a number of different countries. I imagine that was a really enjoyable aspect of your work. We enjoyed travelling in those younger days, uh, not so much now. But uh, yes, we enjoyed time and I think the time I enjoyed most was in Vanuatu. And uh, that was a very pleasant country to work in. People with uh, willingness to help and preparedness to get to and uh, get the place ready for the surgical team which was following. John, the Open Heart projects uh, stimulated other projects, other medical projects. What were some of these? Uh, one was the uh, cleft palate and lip project which took place in Nepal and it was a very, very well presented and performed uh, procedures by Dr Charles Sharp and he uh, did a wonderful job out there. Following after that was uh, the Burns Project and you may remember uh, the Burns Project coming into Royal Prince Alfred Hospital some years ago. Uh, it was very prominent there. Uh, thirdly is the prolapsed uterus program there where you know, ladies have uh, had children far beyond or far earlier than what they should have and consequently having done heavy work, they have a problem with their uterus. And so that's corrected. And those projects are still continuing too? All those projects are still continuing today. And it's quite amazing that the people who are processed and assessed a long time before their teams arrive, and so when they get there, they've got very busy programs. How do these projects get funded? In those days, in early days, it was all funded by people doing strange things like washing motor cars, collecting aluminium cans and selling them for scrap, going to different companies and asking for either not monetary gifts but gifts of equipment. And uh, that's how it got together enough to do the first trip. 
Has that changed? Is there any additional support coming into these projects today? I understand that there is some support coming from the Sydney Adventist Hospital. I'm not quite sure what the amount is, but uh, it's a very different uh, fundraising program to what it is today. They do have various uh, uh, sophisticated programs they run now as far as concerts and other programs where people and dinners which people come to to uh, fundraise these things. John, what do you think have been the major benefits of these projects overseas? The major benefit to me is to see these young people and older people, after they've had their surgery, to have such a sparkle in their eye and a a lift in their step when they walk around. And uh, their hope for the future is quite amazing. They've got an almost normal life ahead of them. Has there been any impact on their own cultures as a result of this? Has this stimulated similar sorts of projects or development of these sorts of services in these countries? I'm not aware of any barrier of being the same, but uh, they could have. I think what has happened, there has been a change in their attitude towards health uh, lifestyle and also from a government point of view in trying to control rheumatic fever. So has there been a, um, an educational component, perhaps, in these projects? There is an educational component, and uh, the people who look after the patients physiotherapy-wise and nursing-wise try and give them some uh, education on how to handle uh, health better. What about um, benefits to the hospital or to the hospital teams or the medical teams? I imagine the, the experience that they gained in these places would have been beneficial for medicine generally? The surgeons, I'm sure, would have uh, liked to have been back home operating in familiar uh, circumstances. Sometimes you have to get uh, used to working in some difficulties, lighting not being just perfect or something else not being available, a, a particular type of suture material. So they do get used to some difficulties there, as does the nursing staff and others that are there as well. What do you think the benefits have been for the hospital in Australia generally? The Sydney Adventist Hospital mm. has benefited from it because they, the wider community see that the Sydney Adventist Hospital is reaching out to those people who are less fortunate than we are, those people who have no hope of having a type of cardiac surgery in their homeland. Sometimes it's more beneficial to bring people from their country to ours for particularly difficult surgery. But uh, most of the time we try, that's tried to be done in their homeland so that they're in their own environment, their own culture, and their success afterwards is far better assured. Mm, mm. Well, it just seems to me that they're wonderful, wonderful projects. What's um, one of your most vivid memories of a project? Vivid memory. I can remember a young man uh, visiting the uh, hospital in Kathmandu in Nepal. John Wallace, Dr. John Wallace and myself had gone there to do a survey to make sure that the hospital was capable of meeting the standards to do cardiac surgery. And whilst we were there, a young man turned up. He'd walked three days through the countryside, caught a bus to Kathmandu and wanted to be operated on because he'd heard that the doctor was there to do surgery. And he was very deflated when he heard that we were only doing a survey, not doing anything in practical nature. That didn't deter him. We said we'd be 12 months or so before we come back. 
So he took a bus back to his bus terminal, another three days' walk home. Now, this is at high altitudes too, this, isn't it? Yeah, nine, ten thousand feet. And uh, consequently, him with his heart condition, it was difficult for him. But a year later, he heard that we were back and he made that same journey in reverse and got there. And he was one of the first people that had cardiac surgery in Nepal. Balaram is his name. And today, when we go back, the first person that greets us at the gate is a big, wide, smiling, white-toothed face with... He's a security officer now, and he throws his arms around you and welcomes you back. Mm. It's very nice to have that kind of uh, approach. Yeah, I can imagine the impact if I was in a situation where I had no hope of making a payment for an operation that I needed, and uh, a team of surgeons came to me and did the operation for free. I'd imagine that would... That would be just a wonderful thing in that person's life. Economy is very bad there. We used to hire people the cost of one Australian dollar a day. That was to do, um, you know, manual work. That's not a great deal of money. And you could never, ever afford to have any kind of surgery like cardiac surgery with that kind of income. So those people had a totally free... Um, cardiac surgery program carried out on them, of which they were most thankful. And all of them had a great deal of uh, admiration for the team that had visited, whether it be Nepal or Myanmar or Fiji or Tonga. It didn't matter. All the people reacted similar. My experience has been that when I've travelled overseas, I enjoy the places I go to, but I always enjoy coming home as well because your own culture is familiar and um, things are done the way that you used to. What do you appreciate about the other cultures that you've worked with? The one that sticks in my mind is friendliness. And then their willingness to help when necessary too. And they show their appreciation for what you've done in such a tangible way. We attended a, uh, a, a feast, if you want to call it that, at Tonga. And, of course, you sit down and laid out in front of you uh, yards and, or metres of uh, food on, laid out on the grass on tablecloths. And uh, the people are there just enjoying eating. Some of them eat a lot and are quite uh, obvious that they've eaten a lot. Others just eat a normal amount. But they were some of the things that we enjoyed taking part of, being part of the community and joining in in their festival. John, the perception of time or the use of time is sometimes different in these cultures. How does that impact on your projects? Time means nothing to some people, especially in the Pacific Islands. You can work on Tongan time or Fiji time. But I remember one particular event where my wife and I decided to go to the beach and we took a bus from the bus terminal and arrived at the beach and intent on enjoying time there. And we asked the bus driver, what time would he be back? And he looked at us with a very quizzical look and said, when it comes. So they didn't uh, run to a schedule. They just ran when the bus was full or left and when it came back to pick you up, you better be there ready because it's not going to have a specified time. So uh, the same thing rolls on from there to their uh, 
looking after equipment. It doesn't happen today, it'll happen tomorrow, maybe. Our culture is very time-oriented, and I guess some people get high blood pressure as a result of that. Um, so does this mean that people enjoy you know, better health in these places because they're not so rushed, pressured? I don't know about the uh, health uh, style side of it, but I should imagine because they are not pressured by time, it would be a more relaxing kind of environment to be in. And uh, what the country, Maryland and I, enjoyed the most is Vanuatu. And it's a very relaxed attitude there. And uh, time, once again, doesn't mean a great deal, except for people like you and I who have to work to a schedule while you're out there. And you do have to get things done on time. But Mm. to them, it's not so important. John, thanks for telling us um, about these um, project stories. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, I will talk with John Maxwell about his early life and spiritual journey. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612 4973 Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Barry Harker, and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest is John Maxwell. In the first part of the program, John told us about his work at Sydney Adventist Hospital and at the Kurenbong Community Services Centre. In this final part of the program... I'll be talking with John about his early life and spiritual journey. John, where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born in Victoria, a little place called Red Hill, a main ridge road, and uh, it's on the Mornington Peninsula. Tell us about what the district was like. It was a uh, orchard area and my f- parents grew strawberries. Our nearest neighbour was the Avelings, just down the road a little bit, and they grew strawberries as well. Uh, apart from them, the, near, the next nearest neighbour would have been two miles down the road and they grew apples. So it was a, an orchard uh, and berry area. And you grew up in that area? Um, not entirely, no, because in 1939, when the war came, my father enlisted in the war and then because of that we shifted down to uh, a suburb of Melbourne called Brunswick. So you were just a little tyke when the war came? Yes. Three years. Tell me about your family. My dad, as I said, went away to the war in 1939 and uh, he went away understanding the Sabbath. The Avelings had a very good uh, attitude towards people and they used to spread the gospel and they convinced my dad that the Sabbath was right. And so uh, he believed that. And when the war came and he joined up, he went away. He came back a non-believing person. 
that smoked and drank. Uh, in the meantime, my mother, who was a Salvationist, also had the opportunity to study with the Avelings and she accepted the message. So my sister, who's seven years my senior and myself, we grew up in a divided home where our, my mother took us to uh, Sabbath school and church every Sabbath, but my dad never attended. And that was a bit of a disappointment, but we grew up with understanding that. You had a family then that was divided because of religion, and uh, some of that was because of the war. So the impact of the war on your father obviously was quite, quite significant. What was it like growing up in that divided family? In a divided family, you can go to one parent and get permission if the other one won't give it to you. So that's how you can grow up in a divided family. But that didn't happen that I very often that I can remember. But it did make things difficult when uh, Sabbath came because Dad would be uh, doing things at home or working and we'd be trotting off down to Sabbath school and church. And I think my mother would have dearly loved him to be part of the Adventist church at that time. One of the amazing things to me is he never he never would stop us going to Sabbath school and church. And he always defended Adventists at the pub. You know, he did stand up and say that they're right. But he never saw the need to accept it himself until one day my mother died from a heart attack. And from that day on, he had a change of heart. He never abused my mother physically, that I, I'm pretty sure of that. But of, um, from a psychological point of view, she probably suffered a little bit. But he changed his way. He never had another drink. He never had another cigarette. He became baptised, became a church member. And now I never thought I'd ever see that day. And when he passed away, we buried him in the same site as next to my mother. And on Resurrection Day, I'm sure my mother's going to be very surprised. She wouldn't expect to see him there. But those things can happen and affect mm. your life dramatically. It's a great surprise you'll get, isn't it? It is. Mm. Tell me about your spiritual journey and your own conversion. Being born as an Adventist, I'll say, and growing up uh, uh, attending an Adventist church, enjoying uh, typical Adventist recreation for social evenings and those kind of things. I didn't have what I would call a dramatic conversion, but I understood that the Christ, that Christ had died for me and was my saviour. I got baptised when I was 18, and uh, I was then part of uh, um, programs that missions were running. I was in a choir, and I used to enjoy that, and I thought that was I was doing a small amount to help the success of those particular evangelists. Ray Stanley was one that I can remember in particular. And uh, we enjoyed growing up in the church. And uh, in 1959, I got married to Marilyn, as I have told you. And in 63, we were invited to go to the Sydney Adventist Hospital, Sydney Sanitarium and Hospital, pardon me. And that had an opportunity there to be able to do something uh, to help. And my spiritual life grew from there because I was able to go on various programs and help people. 
you seem to have a um, attitude of service. I mean, the work that you did at the hospital and also the work that you're doing at the community centre, you seem to take some satisfaction from helping people. Is that is, is that does that come back to your religion, or is I, it something you would have done anyway? No, I think it does come back because uh, one of the things that we talk about at the centre is that Christ satisfied people's physical needs and then the message was presented. I don't like public speaking and I have an opportunity where I am now to be able to help people and then by the lives of the people that these people see, we may be able to affect them spiritually. And it has had some positive results in what we've been doing. How did you meet Marilyn? We went to school together. And we were school sweethearts, if you would like to put it that way. Where was that? It was in Hawthorne, the Adventist uh, Central School there, run by um, Mr W.J. Gilson, uh, probably a well-known educationalist. And uh, we enjoyed our time there. Marilyn went off to do nursing, and I did my uh, training at the technical college. And then after that, we... She graduated, we married. Mm. When you married, did you have a common purpose? Did you, did you have a, a vision for what you wanted to do in your marriage together? Together? We made application to the division to be able to serve as missionaries. Marilyn as a nurse and myself as an electrician. There was a place for her, but not for me. So that went by the way. And we didn't think much more about it until 1963 when Pastor Alan Forbes came and invited us to join with the Sydney Sanitarium and Hospital, which we appreciated, and we stayed there until our retirement in 2000. In a funny sort of way, you had more opportunities to be a missionary at the hospital than if you'd gone overseas. Yes, that's true, because we had a lot more opportunity to make contact with people and tell them a little bit about by what, I, what my faith was and uh, my outlook on life. Has your motivation and outlook on life changed over time? I've become more people orientated in the last few years because of the work I'm involved in with the community centre. I now look at people and they come in and see them as a, a person that not only needs physical help but needs spiritual help as well. Hmm. Tell me a little more about... Um how your centre operates. What's the administrative structure? What's a typical day at the centre look like? Our administrative structure is very simple, Barry. I'm the president, as you know, and I have a lady by the name of Dot Cott here who looks after the staffing, listing and also interviews. And uh, Mr Bob um, Spore, who does the uh, our public secretary and liaison officer with the government. So day-by-day day is a um, interviewing people, assessing their needs, and then trying to provide for them. We have people come to us from the refuge. If they come with a social worker or a representative from there and they need something, furniture or whatever, to start a new life, we provide that furniture free and we take it to their new quarter so that they can have a new beginning in life. And to see that happening with a small family... It is quite amazing. And I look back over the years that we've helped different people with different ways and think it's been a great witness in what we do there. Are there any instances where it has made a really significant difference to a person's life 
set them off on a, a new direction or just help them to overcome a really difficult period in their lives. Success stories, in other words. Difficult periods for people to come out of prison or on early release, um, we do help because they not only have to um, be uh, monitored when they're at home, the only way they can do that is wear an ankle bracelet, but they have to have a telephone connection before they come home. And we have helped uh, people that have come out of prison to have the telephone installed so that they can come home early and spend time with family rather than be divided. And people appreciate that greatly. It's amazing. We still see those people today. The other one is that people come from country areas to, say, Morissette, and to get uh, rental accommodation is not easy, and they've got to come up front with uh, money to pay a, a bond or a month's rent in advance. Sometimes we do help with paying the actual real estate agent money, not the individual, and the um, the reaction of those people is uh, quite surprising. They are emotionally a little bit overcome and they say thank you so much and they come back and see us and they come back and now help us. Yes, that would be really satisfying, wouldn't it, to mm. have people benefit from the experience and then come back and help others through times like that as well. Tell me about a, a, a typical day at the centre for you. For me? Our first staff member arrives at 6 o'clock in the morning. That's not me. I get there at half past eight or thereabouts. Um, our first um, is a meeting between the three of us to ascertain any problems that have been carried over from the previous day uh, and how to uh, fix them if there is any. Uh, then assess out what's to be done during the day, sorting, um, uh, safety issues that might have come about, uh, providing a truck to take things to Sydney, which is another interesting point. We uh, we take the Sydney every 10 to 14 days a truckload of 5.2 tonnes of clothing in excess of our need. So that tells you that the amount of clothing that comes into the centre to be sorted and washed and prepared is a huge amount. There are ladies there working uh, every day just sorting out what's good and what's not good. What's not good goes for rags and to for automobile mechanics, etc., and what's good goes to the centre, and uh, in excess of what our need is goes to Sydney, and that then gets sent to Africa for the people there that have nothing. Where is the centre? Where is it situated? The centre is located on 614 Freeman's Drive, Kurumbal. So if there are people who live in the local area who have a need, they can find you at that address if they... They can. They can go on the website and look there and see the telephone number and the address. And it also has the hours we're open. Hmm. So what's an afternoon look like? An afternoon. Now, they can be busy because a lot of people um, arrive for interviews. And so... Uh, you struggle through those, and at the end of the day, you're quite relieved that four o'clock's come. But uh, the number of people we interview on a daily basis can vary a significant amount, depending on how far it is away from payday. 
they've been paid a fortnight ago and so they run out of money in the second week. How many people would you serve on a, on a really busy day? As far as interviews? Yes. Um, probably, I'd say, 14 to 18. So interviews take a little bit of time. They're not just a couple of minutes and you have to, you know, do a little bit of investigation. Make sure they come from your area. Make sure that they have a Centrelink uh, card so that they can be you know, bona fide aid people. And uh, after that, we look into their needs. Have they been with us to see us before? Are they new? And so it goes. What are your peak times? Peak times the second week of, a, uh, <laughs> of the uh, pay period. And... Uh, we try to finish at 3.30 because if you don't finish at 3.30, you'll be going right up to 4 o'clock. And so the last person in at 3 o'clock and that usually finishes the day. But uh, it can change and Christmas time becomes very busy because uh, people are looking forward to enjoying Christmas break, but they don't have anything to enjoy it with. Mm. And so uh, Christmas hampers are very popular. John, tell me about your children and their families. Our daughter, uh, she lives in Warburton, Victoria, married to Danny Kirker. They have one child, Tom, and uh, he's a, he works with IT and he's quite keen on his uh, uh, work and development. Our son lives in Grafton and... Uh, he has uh, children, and at the moment, uh, he and his wife, Rachel, have been um, uh, caring for a young boy since four months old. They've been fostering him, and uh, they have been going through the process of adoption in the last year or so, and that's about to happen very shortly. So his name is Levi, and we look forward to seeing him from time to time. Not often enough, of course, because it's a fair way to Grafton, and uh, to go, you just can't pop up for a... 10-minute visit, and the same goes for Melbourne. But we do see them not frequently but regularly. Where did the interest in abseiling come from? Pastor Wayne French, you may have heard of him. He uh, was at the Warunga Seventh-day Adventist Church and he uh, saw a need in the young people to have some challenging outdoor experience and so he worked up an abseiling program which took off very well. And we had quite a number of young people uh, being trained as uh, to do abseiling. We used to do it on the, uh, a road called the Commonara Parkway, which is just behind the Sydney Adventist Hospital, and very good cliffs there to work on. And as things progressed and people got more experienced, we took them out to much higher and bigger climbs, uh, or abseils, I should say, the one, one of them being Mount Banks and another one is Canangra Walls, which is on the way from Janolan to Oberon. How did you come to be an instructor? The number of children and young people coming through was far greater than what one person could uh, handle. And so a group of us, about five or six, became instructors and we took it upon ourselves to provide Wayne the support he needed because he couldn't be there every every weekend doing something. He had other responsibilities as far as preaching is concerned. And so the four or five of us took on an instructor's role and 
that progressed over the years. John, how long since you've been abseiling? I'd say 15 years because of moving away from the Sydney environment and the proximity to various good abseiling areas. Um, and I am getting a little old and I don't have the flexibility that's needed to uh, be able to do that anymore. Apart from your work at the community centre, how do you fill your time in? Well, we live in a retirement village now, and so I don't have a great deal of things to do around the house. But the community centre requires most of my time, and so um, usually I'm there on either uh, most days or part of days. Yeah. How long do you think you'll be able to continue doing that sort of work? As long as my health is all right and my mental capabilities are okay. Um, and then again, there may be a situation where people re think to themselves they would like someone different. And we're just like any other um, organisation on our annual general meeting, all our positions become vacant and people can elect new ones if they wish to. So far, no one's wanting to do my job. Maybe that's good, maybe it's not, I don't know. But uh, uh, people are happy to work there, but they don't want to do a leadership role. You do get a little bit of time to get away, though, don't you? You take, yeah. a, take some time each year to do a trip? or We do. We uh, go to Grey Nomads Camp. We actually close the centre to go there because uh, most of the people that are there are older folk and they all wish to go to the Grow Nomads camp. So that's closed for that period of time. And some other times we do try and get away for a longer period of time to enjoy um, the far north of Queensland or just recently we went to Israel. I think most people know what a Grow Nomad is, <laughs> but what's the Grow Nomads camp like? A Grow Nomads camp is one that's very special. It's built around my needs, my age group needs. And we don't have music, which we're not used to, and we have more conservative things, and that's fine. And I understand that young people have to have different things than what I have. But it's built around... The Grey Nomads Camp is built around providing the needs for older Adventists that go along there. The starting time is not so early. <laughs> <laughs> John, what have you learned from your life that you think everyone needs to know? You live... Uh healthy, long, healthy life? I'd like to think I live a, a healthy life. I don't know how long it'll be, but I guess my outlook on life is being helping others. And uh, I guess I have a fairly strong um, work ethic and uh, I try my best to do what I can to help other people along life's pathway, whether it be physically helping an individual or helping them at the community centre. You feel then that living an outward-focused life on the needs of other people has been an important part of your life? Yes, I believe so, because if you help, for, uh, help people with their physical and practical needs, they're more open to you to spread the word of uh, Christ and they soon return. Is there a favourite passage of scripture that you have? First John 1 John one nine is one that comes to my mind frequently. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And day by day, I try to live my life that it could be my last day or my last hour or my last minute. I know. Um, I see that as being a way to make sure that I'm prepared for eternity. Very wonderful verse, though, isn't it? It is. The fact mm. that we make mistakes, we do wrong things. Um, the fact that God offers to forgive us if we're willing to confess and turn away from those things means that we can have a clean slate. We can um, clean the slate, mm. turn over a new leaf. He gives me forgiveness mm. and no questions asked. And in that time, I'm prepared for eternity. And I think uh, all the things in my past are gone and I don't have to have another problem to worry about. Mm. John, I usually ask my guests to pray for um, our listeners. I'm just wondering whether you would like to do that now as we close our conversation. Okay. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the energies and strength that we all enjoy from day to day. We thank you too for the people who have taken time to listen to this program. We pray that they'll be blessed in some way and that they can have a closer connection with you. We pray too for 3ABN as it does this work that the message goes out via television and radio programs to a great number of people. May each individual be blessed and that the programs they prepare are good soul-winning ones. So we ask that you'll give us your guidance and your blessing and direction for today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, John. John, thank you. I really admire the work that you're doing at the Kurumbong Community Services Centre. I think it's a wonderful work. I wish you well. I hope your health holds out and you have much more time as a healthy, productive member of the, uh, the community there. I also wish your volunteers uh, well too for the work that they do on behalf of the community. And if there's anyone out there who would like to assist you, anyone who lives in the local area here is hearing this program, if they'd like to assist you, they can get in contact with you, can't they, at that, at that centre? They can. I'd also like to um, mention that uh, if you would like to support Operation Open Heart at Sydney Adventist Hospital and any other medical projects overseas, you can do that by contacting the hospital on 02 9487 Any contributions that people make, I understand, are tax deductible to these projects. They're such worthy projects and they do such a wonderful thing in terms of um, presenting our country to the, to, the, to the world. So, John, all the best. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you today. Don't forget to join me, Barry Harker, next time as I speak with another fascinating guest on Life Learnings. Bye for now, and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.